Anne Dudley, how wonderful to see you and lovely and marvelous. Likewise, Richard. Of course, you started as an arranger. What I'd like you to tell the lay public is how you got started in this strange profession. Yes, strange profession. Um, I didn't intend to be an arranger. I don't know that anybody really intends to be an arranger. You just sort of fall into it. I, um, I was really a musician. I started out as a keyboard player. And there seems to be this thing about keyboard players because they apparently play so many notes at one time. People think that they uh, have this incredible music, musical knowledge, play the bass part and the chords at the same time. So very soon into my career as a studio musician, somebody said to me, could you do a string arrangement for this piece? And uh, in those days, I used to say yes to everything. And I said, yes, of course, yes. And they said, okay, well, um, fine, do it. And uh, I thought, oh, how do you do that then? What's all that about? So I went back home and I got out all my records, which had string arrangements on them that I liked. And um, it was things like Quincy Jones, Arif Mardin, George Martin, Motown. And I thought, oh, I see, that's how you do a string arrangement. The violins do those sort of chunky melodies up there and violas and cellos around about the middle to the bottom. That's how it started, really. So tell us about your very first arranging gig. <laughs> Nobody ever forgets, do they? No, that's why I asked you. <laughs> well, it wasn't a string arrangement, it was a brass arrangement. And somebody said, can you do a brass arrangement? And I said, yes, of course. And um, it, it was a track called, I blush to remember it, We Love to Dance at Discos. You can imagine. Nice. Yeah, really catchy. And um, uh, I, I remember exactly the lineup. We had two trumpets, two trombones, an alto sax and a tenor sax. And I wrote all these funky licks and um, lots of people had given me lots of terrible advice about it. Um, and it sounded fine. You know, I seemed to get away with it. So um, then somebody asked me to do another one and, you know, things went on from there. I could probably still even remember the licks from that uh, arrangement over which I sweated blood probably. Well, I won't ask you to sing them for us. No. But I, but I assure you that the BBC will search out that record and will be playing it behind your Well, I'm happy, I'm happy to tell you it probably never got released. Oh, <laughs> quel dommage. You actually, uh, I believe, had a relationship with a producer or someone who was to become a producer sort of early on because you knew Trevor Horn sort of right at the beginning mm. of your career. Mm. Well, um, I met Trevor Horn when he was sort of uh, apprentice producer. Uh, he was the sort of guy that publishers would ring up to produce demos for their artists. But he was very ambitious and um, would do ridiculously huge and luscious productions for, you know, tiny budgets uh, just by sheer force of determination, I think. Um, but pretty soon he, he started to get some good producing gigs and um, one of his first producing gigs was a band called ABC. Uh, ABC were a Sheffield band and um, they didn't have a keyboard player so he brought me in to play keyboards and to routine the songs with the band and to do the sort of things that producers did in those days which was to s structure the songs in sort of more 
succinct way maybe than the band had done and work out how to arrange the instruments. And so with the ABC album, The Lexicon of Love, I was pretty much involved from the word go, um, which is always the best way, really, uh, because quite often as an arranger, you're brought in at a very late stage and somebody says, do a string arrangement, and there's no room left on the track. There's, there's, there's All the gaps have been filled. Uh, so when we did uh, The Look of Love, there was plenty of gaps, and we knew we wanted to use the strings for it. Um, and I remember we had quite a large string section, probably the largest that I'd had until then. And we booked Abbey Road, number one, which was the first time that I'd worked there. Huge, great studio. And although we had about 24, 26 musicians, they were absolutely dwarfed by this enormous space. And there's a certain sound to Abbey Road, which I am... Um, you can certainly detect, I think, on the string arrangement on The Look of Love. Would you say that that's as true today when every instrument and every sound on a record is affected so much by technology that you can place, you know, a tiny string section in a in a huge uh, auditorium or you can uh, make a huge string section sound sound like it's recorded in a, in a garage somewhere? Yeah, certainly um, with the sort of digital reverbs that people use nowadays, the actual sound of the room is much less important than it used to be. But it all depends how much the um, the final mix uses of the sound of the room. Um, still, engineers put up ambient mics when you go and re record a string section. If you want to use them, you'll inevitably get the sound of the room. If you don't, you can get any sound you want if your mics, mics are pretty close to the instruments. Would you say there's been a change? Because you, what you did there, you actually worked with the band, which indicated that they had some musical prowess themselves and could actually sort of write songs and play something, or some, they were people you could actually work with. Whereas today, I think, you know, most pop records, the arrangers brought in right at the end, and you, you hardly ever have any contact with the band. Mm. It's certainly true that on my list of credits, there's things like S Club 7, which excites my daughter and her friends incredibly. And they say, what's it like working with S Club 7? And I have to say, I have no idea, because they weren't there. <laughs> I get the exact same questions, and I, I don't know. What, I have to say the same thing. Yeah, The artists seem to spend less and less time in the studio and more and more time at, on photo sessions and dance lessons. <laughs> oh, of course, those are the important things. <laughs> After all, yeah. um, let's talk about um, uh, certainly uh, the Frankie stuff mm. comes to mind. Mm. Uh, would you have some cute anecdotes about that those sessions? Frankie goes to Hollywood. Trevor usually used to try and arrange it that the band actually weren't there when I turned up because they were a pretty debauched bunch, and he thought that even I might be shocked at the antics. But actually, I've met Holly on a number of occasions, and he's a sweetie. Really, I think it's just when they all got together. They, would be boys behaving badly. There's two main tracks that I remember from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. One was Two Tribes, where it has this extraordinary sort of Russian, Eastern European intro, which we scored for clarinets and string orchestra. Uh, and then, then in the middle, it goes to this... Uh, I don't know how to describe it, really. It's a sort of... It always sounded a bit like Bartok, a sort of folky dance section in the middle which we scored for piccolo and xylophone and uh, it has quite an extraordinary effect in the middle of this very programmed driving beat that 
suddenly it becomes quite orchestral and sounds probably like a piece of film music. When you came up with those things, had there been discussions with Trevor before, or did you say, hey, I've got an idea for these things? Talk a little bit about the development of those ideas and then slamming them into the arrangement. I think the intro for Two Tribes was pretty much musically written. Um, I can't remember what it was played on until we did it on the orchestra, because nobody played keyboards in that band, and I did play piano on it, but I can't remember if it had been a piano riff. When you say it was already there, you mean it was already it was already written by whom? By you or by someone else? No, by the band. In those days, bands used to make demos before they made records. Right. And uh, amazing. amazing idea that, isn't it? Sort of work out some ideas before you... Uh... They weren't the, the finest uh, musicians on the planet. Now, would Trevor have also perhaps put them together with somebody like Andy Richards? I mean, he's certainly... Very, his, his mark is very evident in the... Uh, in the kind of uh, sequencer uh, thing of the record, but I was wondering if perhaps... I think it's a moot point as to how much Frankie actually played on their records. Right. And I think it even went to court at one stage because they claimed that, or Holly claimed that he'd sung on the records and Trevor seemed to try and claim that he hadn't. Or, I don't know, it seems ludicrous to me. Um, you say that they weren't um, particularly accomplished musicians. Well, that's true, but... As so often with these bands, they can play their own stuff fine. It's only when you try and move the goalposts that things start getting confusing. Like if you tried to change the key or something, it would really throw most bands. Or if you tried to add a few extra bars, they'd never remember them. Um, So I think it's fair to say that Frankie had practically written certainly most of those early songs before they ever got a record deal and before they ever went into the studio. Uh, whether they had all the intros and all the middle sections, I don't know. I mean, that's something that a producer and arranger work on. Um, certainly with The Power of Love, the whole song was available in demo form before we started working on it. One of the reasons I ask this is because having worked with Trevor myself, I know that there, uh, there have been occasional moments uh, that I can remember in the past where ideas are thrown up, outrageous, uh, you know, left field ideas, either by myself or him or somebody else on the session, and then they're followed through. I mean, I remember one thing he said to me on one thing, I said, what are you looking for on this? What do you want? And he just said, impress me. Now, you know, so so what I'm saying is he was very open to ideas. I Mm. mean, obviously, you found him that way as well. Yes, he is very open to ideas. And he's also at his best as a producer, because he can capture the moment. When somebody will just improvise something just on the spur of the moment, he'll say, that was great. Whatever that was, don't change it. Now, a lot of people can't seem to do that. The essence of making a good record is knowing when to stop, knowing when it's right, knowing when that idea is worth capturing. And Trevor was particularly good at that. Because I was involved as a keyboard player, there would often be ideas that I would play just as sort of a playthrough. Thing. And he would say, oh, I like, really like that line. Let's have that line as a string counter melody or something like that. So that would happen a lot. I think a lot of good ideas can come from improvisation. Let's talk about some of the other producers that you've worked with uh, and other kind of pop records that might come to mind as being, well, this was an interesting one because... Well, one of my favourite records that I've ever been involved with um, wasn't a great hit, though I think it's a very, very good single. It was by a band called Electronic. It involved Bernard Butler from New Order, Johnny Marr and Neil Tennant from 
the Pet Shop Boys, and they had this great single, great title, sums up probably my life. It's called Getting Away With It. It had this great, great lyric, I've been getting away with it all my life. And it, they sent it to me and they said, it was one of those where the song was completely written, the vocal was down, the backing track was recorded, and they sent it to me and said, do a string arrangement. That was the brief, really. No particular, we want this in the chorus or whatever, just do a string arrangement. And I listened to it. And it's one of those songs where the bass part doesn't quite fit the chords. The tune doesn't quite fit the chords. Nothing really quite fits together. And if you were to actually transcribe it for instruments, it would sound like an incredible mess. But it actually worked. And so this whole thing gelled together. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with the strings? Because... If I go with the implied chords of the vocal, it'll sound wrong with the chords that they've got on the keyboard. If I go with the chords on the keyboard, it'll sound wrong with the vocal. So I sort of had this, I made the string sort of float over the top of it. I don't know quite how to describe it, but the strings were just as ambiguous as the rest of the track. And um, we had quite a large string section. I think we had like 24, 30-piece string section. And I'd... I did it at Angel Studios, recorded it at Angel Studios. I hadn't really met any of them, hadn't really met the guys or talked to them. And it's that, you know, it's quite terrifying, as you know, when you go into the studio and you've done your string arrangement and they're sitting there and it's like, as you say, impress me. <laughs> and we played it through and the first thing that happened was the engineer, John Timberley, came out and moved the microphones. I thought it's a bizarre idea, but there you go. He moved all the microphones further away from the strings. And then we played it through again, recorded it, and it sounded wonderful. It sounded like this wonderful sort of Englishy, Vaughan Williamsy, Herbert Howells thing over this electronic track. And I remember a friend of mine heard it on the radio several weeks later and said, did you do the strings on that track? And I said, yeah, he said, they're fantastic. And I hadn't heard the final mix at that stage, and I, thought, I wondered what he was talking about. And then I did hear the final mix, and somehow they captured that moment, that moment where the air had suddenly come round everything. And there's such a great atmosphere on this track. I don't know. I still love it. It was probably too much for the general public, but we'll certainly find this record. I think it was a bit of a hit. I think it might have reached number 15 or something. 15 in the is chart. not bad. 15 Anne. is all right. I know to you it's not much, but to the average person, <laughs> 15 it would be very good. No, to the average person, unless it's number one, it's not a hit. Yeah, but I mean, if the average to if, us, if you walked up to somebody in the street and you said, uh, "Okay, you've got a number that you've got a number fifteen in the charts," he'd be very happy. He would, especially, especially if he was a plumber. Well, in those days, number fifteen in the charts would mean that you'd sold tens of thousands of copies. Whereas nowadays, you've probably sold three hundred and four, <laughs> if that. Probably to your mum. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. As an arranger for many years, uh, we all know that perhaps that isn't the most rewarding job in the world sometimes. And, of course, you moved into the artist area with, uh, well, probably many things, but let, let's talk about the art of noise briefly. And also, it, while you're talking about that, maybe you could also comment, because it seems to me that in a way you kind of had four arrangers working there, because I'm sure there was a coming together of a lot of ideas. Mm. It seemed a natural progression that... It was We were like the house band, if you like, for Trevor and ZTT. It was me, it was Gary Langan, the engineer, JJ Yen Charlick, and Paul Morley was involved doing the, the artwork, 
any sort of lyrical content. And Trevor was a sort of overseer. Paul had this title, The Art of Noise, which he'd stolen from an Italian futurist manifesto of 1912 or something. And it sounded like a really good, interesting title. And it seemed to perfectly well encapsulate making music out of noises. And um, Trevor had bought this sampling keyboard, one of the first ones in Britain, called a Fairlight, uh, in which you could sample a sound like a door closing or a horse neighing and play it in the, on a keyboard in several different pitches. So suddenly you could make a tune out of a dog barking. One of the things that people forget about the early Fairlight was the length of the sampling was about 1.5 seconds. So it was really difficult to make anything sound any good. And also the uh, the hi-fi quality of it was severely limited because it cut off at about 8K, so there was no brightness, no top. So Gary Langan really got into his element. You'd give him these crappy sounds and he'd make them sound great because he would use the desk like an instrument. He'd, he was so technically au fait with whatever was in the studio. He could use the equalisation, the di digital reverbs, the panners, whatever, to make some sort of decent sound out of this terrible noise that you were giving him. Anyway, so we called ourselves the Art of Noise. We based our sort of uh, thing around this Fairlight sampling keyboard, and I was the sort of musical element, the keyboard player. Gary had a very important role in making things sound good, and JJ was the programmer of the... Um, Fairlight. And so, as you say, we all had this input. My input tended to be the sort of musical things, and I always used to think that uh, it was very, very avant-garde, probably in the in the vein of Stockhausen and these experimental composers. And then I used to go home at a reasonable time, and the others would stay up all night and put these hip-hop beats to it, and I'd come in in the morning and it would sound like a completely different track. So it was a very good combination of... Uh, talents I think um, and although we didn't use any conventional instruments at first it was still like um, an arranger's job really to make the, all the di different elements gel together and obviously uh, the musical ideas that you came up with I guess in terms of the programming side then it would be in a way it sounds a bit like JJ was arranging your musical ideas because he was adding the sequencing sort of side and the and the uh, the beats underneath this sort of musical structure that you had laid down. It didn't always work that way round. Um, there would be a lot of improvisation, a lot of let's just jam and see what happens. And uh, you know we'd set a beat going and I'd play with a few sounds, and then because we had this sequencer, we could then go back and rearrange it, chop it about. I mean, that's how the track Close to the Edit came about, because it was chopped up from lots and lots of different ideas, all done to the same tempo. And it wasn't always me who came up with the musical ideas. I, I remember that the that little bluesy bass part on Close to the Edit, Gary sat down and played that, and then JJ added a few more notes to it. I would have probably never done something that was so overtly a 12-bar blues. It's quite 
quite an unusual idea, really, in this avant-garde sampling world that we were in. Gary played this sort of bluesy bass part. And I, my first instinct was, well, that's not going to work. And then I thought, hmm, well, actually it does, because it's something familiar in a strange landscape. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, and I hope you're enjoying Radio Richard. To help us keep bringing you this great free content, please take a second to click the subscribe button. And if you can afford it, we appreciate your donations, too. All the links are below in the description and the bio. So thanks for putting up with that, and now let's get back to the fun. Something familiar in a strange landscape. Exactly, which of course was the charm of Peter Gunn. Mm. It was a familiar tune in a strange landscape. Mm. How did that come about? I suppose, to be honest, the record company wanted a hit. And it's pretty difficult for an instrumental band to have a hit. So um, we had a very enterprising record company man called Derek Green. I think he looked through the Guinness Book hit singles to see what other instrumental tracks had ever been hits. And he came up with these lists of Apache and a few other things, Walk in the Black Forest. And then he came up with Peter Gunn, which found a lot more favour with us <laughs> because it was a much more uh, rootsy, got sort of funky track. And... Um, I knew it quite well. I don't know why I knew it quite well. I think I'd always heard versions of Peter Gunn. And it's quite a... I mean, we associate Mancini with a quite polished, big bandy, sophisticated tracks. But this is quite uh, quite a wild track, really. It just the, the tune just is semi-improvised sort of jazz tune over a, um, a continuous bass riff. It doesn't have any sophisticated chords in it or anything. And Dwayne Eddy, the guitarist, had already done a version of Peter Gunn, which had been a hit in about 1959. And um, I never even knew that Dwayne Eddy existed, actually. I thought he was a figment of some sort of guitarist imagination. It always sounded to me like an onomatopoeia, like Dwayne Eddy, Dwayne... That's the Dwayne Eddy guitar sound, I thought, was just a description of the guitar sound. Anyway, he's a real person. And he came and he recorded his real guitar with us. And um, he turned out to be one of the few people, apparently, who had a hit in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Four decades of hits, which we thought was quite impressive. He more or less played exactly the same part as he'd played 30 years before. And we devised this arrangement around it of, uh, you know, what was then quite contemporary sounding beats here's a question american pop records british pop records compare and contrast hmm interesting question yeah well you're asking for a generalization obviously um and i hesitate to uh well you can give some specific to, examples uh, okay i'll give you a specific example buddy holly some of buddy holly's last recordings he went into a studio and um there's a string orchestra um reigning in my heart very famous sort of um in use of strings in a up to then he'd done guitar based records and then you hear that sound so often then in all the subsequent English pop records like Adam Faith. <laughs> it's the same ideas, the pizzicato strings. And so I think there's what could 
kindly be described as cross-fertilisation and what could unkindly be described as plagiarism. <laughs> and I think that's been going on for years and years because I think, um, which way round was it? Was it Brian Wilson wanted to make Pet Sounds an even better record than um, Sgt Pepper or was the Beatles wanted to make Sgt Pepper an even better record than Pet Sounds? Um, I mean, people look at each other across the Atlantic with a sort of suspicion and jealousy and what are they doing that I, I'm not doing? What can I learn from them? What can I steal from them? Um, I think it's generally considered that the English were more quirky and perhaps would be a little bit more outrageous and original and do things... yeah with a rather more sort of um, disregard for any perceived tradition. Do you think that would be a fair I think it's assessment? Very fair. Yes, I think it's very fair. And not only that, you very wisely moved into a creative area of film composition uh, at a time when the British pop industry is just about full to the brim of records which sound exactly alike. Now is not, perhaps, I think most people would agree, now is not the most creative or innovative time for British music. However, at the time you were working a lot as an arranger and certainly with the art of noise, you were working very heavily in the pop world at a time when it was very creative and very innovative. And, and all, of, uh, all of those records that were being made, certainly in the 80s, uh, were... Uh, records which still influence people today, not only by Trevor Horn but other creative people, uh, were pretty influential. But mm. but the times are different now, and you were working right at the heart of that time when anything was possible. Mm. Uh, when if you had a wild idea, you could just run with it. Well, the business was different, as I said. If you had a number one record, you sold maybe a million records you know there was more money the record companies were more prepared to take a chance because they had a lot of money slushing around and now they don't pop ate itself as malcolm mclaren told me it was going to do <laughs> and uh you know it did and nowadays the you hear so many sampled tracks and you think hang on a minute i remember that that was cars by gary newman <laughs> And, you know, it's, they even sample things that you thought weren't that great. And you think, oh, that sounds really good. I forgot how good that sounded. Uh, there's certainly less interest now in making original sounds. I mean, there's a lot of traditional pop songs around, love them or hate them. Some of them have better tunes than others. Um, and well-crafted pop records, you know, uh, you can't... Um, you can't deny that Steps and S Club 7 and those groups make very well-crafted records. But there's less interest in really making something that is completely original, that people would hear a track like Gary Newman's Cars and think, wow, I've never heard that sound before. We were always after the new sound, the new combination of sounds, something that would make your record stand out from everybody else's record. And in a way, that brings me to the role of the arranger. I mean, uh, I think the role of the arranger obviously is to add that extra element, whatever it is, whether it's a mm. particular musical line or it's uh, a particular sound that they come up with or, or uh, it could be anything. But, but that's why people would go to an arranger to add that spark of creativity that perhaps wasn't there in the original song. Mm. Yes, and I think there's less of that goes on nowadays. 
For instance, let me just ask you about Kiss. Yes. I'm glad well, you asked me about it because well, it's an interesting arrangement, actually. Yes. We all thought it was a good idea to make a record with Tom Jones and we all loved the song Kiss. And I said, well, the thing is, how do we make it so that it's not just a Tom Jones record? Because if we just record Kiss with Tom Jones, it's going to be a Tom Jones record. So I said, well, supposing we make Tom a sort of central element in the song and each verse... I think there's three verses, we change the rhythm section sound completely, which is not what people generally do. Generally, they have the drum sound that's the same all the way through. And um, not many people have ever commented on it, but you will notice that on each repetition of the verse, we go to a completely different sounding rhythm track composed of completely different combinations of instruments. And so that's how I think we can just about justify... <laughs> describing the record as, as I think it's listed as the art of noise featuring Tom Jones, which is a bit of a coup, really, because um, you know, let's face it, everybody remembers it as a as a Tom Jones record. <laughs> but you know, I feel that we we were vindicated because um, we took that sort of left centre approach to it, and Tom was fine about it. Tom didn't mind. No, why should he? It was fun. Yeah, no, he was great. We, when we first did it, we were a bit sort of... Um, we never met Tom because he was ill at the time of the recording and was unable to travel and he had a throat problems and we were a bit afraid that he would actually never get around to doing the vocal, but he did. He went into a studio one night in Los Angeles and he had our multi-track and he sent back the vocal and it was great, it was fine. But we'd never met and we'd never discussed the arrangement and it's only after the vocal came back that we decided to try this different rhythm idea so then I think the agreement was that he would have final say as to whether he approved of the mix so we sent over the mix and then we had this bizarre phone call his manager phoned back and said we've listened to the song 16 times yes pause and we love it <laughs> I've never forgotten that why did he say we've listened to the song 16 times and I thought he was going to say and we still think the vocal's not loud enough or, or something. But Maybe was, just to tell you how much he loved it. Well, I, I, you got to love something to listen to it 16, 16 times. times. Well, it was quite short. I mean, that would have only taken you an hour or so. But even so, <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Buffalo Girls was a sort of, um, oh, it was an edit job, an arranging job, a keyboard playing job, sort of keeping your sanity job. Give me one paragraph on why it was difficult to keep your sanity. And I already know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. Malcolm McLaren? <laughs> that's not a paragraph. That's just the <laughs> name. Well, another interesting person to tackle rearranging, of course, is old Claude. So uh, how did you approach that project? <laughs> the Seduction of Claude Debussy. You can tell that that's a Paul Morley title. Oh, yes, you? definitely. It's a Paul Morley title, but the idea, it came about because Trevor and I both loved Debussy. And Trevor had discovered the Chanson de Bilitis, which is a short song cycle that Debussy wrote, and it has the most gorgeous chords in it. And the thing about Debussy chords is you can describe them in terms of jazz chords. It's like sort of G minor 9 going to a C13. They're incredibly lush and rich, but they appear to be rooted in jazz, which is nonsense, of course, because Debussy was composing 
well before even ragtime had raised its head. So the idea behind the, the seduction of Claude Debussy was to extract from Debussy certain sequences of chords and not to sample them exactly, but to use those sequences of chords in a different context. So, for example, there's a track on the album called Il Pleur, where we we took the first couple of chords from a song that he wrote called Il Pleur, and we didn't go into the rest of the song, we just used those chords, and the chords are E major 9, B minor 7. I mean, Debussy didn't know that. Presumably he didn't have that way of describing them. But they're incredibly in- interesting. And um, most of Debussy's chord sequences, of course, are too complex and too long and just go off into a just wonderful world of Debussy-ishness. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that one can do anything with them. So we um, we think that we were faithful to the spirit of Debussy. We didn't think he was revolving in his grave too too much. And carrying on with, with the development of that project, what was the end result that you were looking for? What was the kind of listening experience that you were hoping to achieve? That's tricky. I don't know if one ever analyzes that. I mean, with some people, the, the end result that they'd want would be, I want to turn people on to Uncle Claude's music. That could be one thing. Or the other thing is, I want people to get out on the dance floor and I want to see them dancing to, to Uncle Claude. You know, the, it could be anything that was your desired effect. Or I want them just to be lost in the gorgeousness of the whole thing. I mean, one of the things that I always say about being an arranger is it involves the use of the imagination. Because you get a piece of music to deal with and you have to imagine what it would sound like with either your additions or your treatment of it. Mm. So it's a, it's a, it's like dreaming. Mm. Now that brings us to Uncle Claude. Who? Yes. Yes. Well, I, I yes, I've I've got an idea of how I might answer your question now. Um, as an arranger, you do paint pictures. The pictures are mostly in your head until the day when you take your picture, which one might describe as your score, to the studio and start working on it. When people listen to Debussy, I think they're always aware of impressionist paintings, really, and I suppose it's one's trying to paint impressionist paintings in music. What I wanted people to get from the record was an incredible sense of the beauty of Claude Debussy's chord sequences and melodies, but to be driven along and excited by this sort of drum and bassy rhythm that we put to it. Because at the time, I was very impressed by... um, that Everything But The Girl record, whose name I can't remember, but Everything But The Girl had clearly written ballads. And then the producer or the arranger or the programmer or somebody had come in and put these double tempo, double tempo dance tracks underneath it. So it's, instead of it being 90 beats per minute, it was 180 beats per minute. And it was incredibly exciting, this sort of slow-moving chord sequence with very fast, frantic, very sort of energetic rhythm underneath. And that was, in my mind at least, I mean, everybody else involved in it might, might say something else, but that was my idea be- behind the Debussy project, this combination of very slow-moving, serene harmonies and very beautiful 
pastel-y colours and this very sort of driving, intense electronic beat underneath. I think you answered that question really well. <laughs> See, see, I, I knew it. No, I, I knew just eventually. needed a little time. You had to know it. I mean, I, it's just I had to kind of get in to there, but it was great. We'll see, that's the me. kind of stuff I like to hear. And we've only got a few minutes left, and I've purposely avoided asking this question, and I don't want to ask this question, but because of who you are, I can't help asking the question. It's so boring. I'm sure everybody asks you. What do you want to ask me? I'm going to, well, you know, What's it been like being a woman arranger in the big male-dominated world of music? Okay, I've, well, got, I've got to ask you. I'm sorry. Okay. It's boring. Well, my answer to this is I can't possibly answer that question because I didn't have the opportunity of being a male arranger. If, if I could have been a male arranger, I could have said I had that ex set of experiences as a man and that set of experiences as a woman, hence the difference. But how can I possibly know? I just had to ask because... Because obviously you are one of the few female arrangers in the history of pop, and and, and that's quite a, a thing. Anyway, just as a statistic, uh, it may not actually be important, but I had to ask the question. Well, I could give you an alternative answer. Oh, good. And I could say, of course, women are far better at um, being arrangers rather than men because, of course, women have this instinct, and women have intuition, and women know when things are meant and not necessarily said. Gosh, is that the time? <laughs> Get out of that one. <laughs> Gosh, is that the time? Well, I hope you got that, Lizzie. <laughs> Lizzie probably agrees with me. Oh, of course she does. Of course she does. Well, possibly. Radio Richard!